Hey guys, it's Danielle. Welcome back to another Pure Root Wellness Podcast, the show that discusses natural and holistic approaches for optimal health. So join me down the path towards finding the roots to your personal wellness. Hey guys, and welcome back to another Pure Root Wellness Podcast. And today's topic is one that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, The topic itself is called I've Got Them Eat Sweats. And it's truly just delving into meat product and um, animal product consumption, what that does for your body and how that kind of affects your health. So we will jump in by me actually clearing my conscience. Um, I am a vegetarian. I've been about a vegetarian for about 15 years. And at first it was truly out of courteousness to a fellow roommate. And then once I started to really educate myself and learn more about what went into the meat, how the animals were treated, I truly knew I would never go back to eating any type of meat product. Um, I do want to preface it by saying, let's be clear, this is not a meat bashing podcast. Um, I obviously have friends and family that that eat meat. Uh, My husband is still a meat eater. My three-year-old little boy uh, consumes meat product. Uh, I will say, though, that I try and be very cognizant and aware of the type of meat products that I'm buying, what is in the meat, where did it come from, and really trying to get uh, the best product possible um, for you know people that do still consume meat uh, within my life, or at least when I'm cooking for them. So what I really want to do, though, for this podcast is just really look at the evidence to explore how meat, again, affects your health, including the benefits and maybe not so good benefits of meat consumption. And I'm not going to lie, I may sprinkle a little bit of um, environmental tidbits in there just because we live in a world where we will continuously take, take, take from our planet and our world. And at some point, um, there will be nothing given back to us because of the mass amount of consumption. So I think it's important from an environmental standpoint um, to talk about that link between, uh, you know, meat products and consumption and what that is doing to our environment. So the book that started it all, Skinny Bitch, um, that's what it's called, Skinny Bitch. Um, It was, I can't remember if it came out in like 2000. I can't remember, nine or something. I'd read this book back, I want to say, and in, in, it had to have been around then, 2008, 2009. Anyway, basically, it breaks down how us as Americans eat pretty much twice as much protein than we really need. This has been directly linked to obesity, diabetes, and cancer. This is not, um, again, something that I feel like I'm telling people that they don't know, um, but maybe you don't know. <laughs> Uh, the amount of protein that we consume is just excessive, at least in the United States. Um, the waste is excessive, right? You know, we can only have it on the shelf for so long. And, and you know, how how do they preserve the length of the meat? Well, they have to inject XYZ into it. You know, it's just this big kind of weird down trickle effect of the meat consumption that we have, but it actually being directly linked into obesity, diabetes, and cancer. Now, Research and studies have also shown that eating large amounts of animal protein and less vegetables actually means less fiber and more work for the kidneys and liver. This is how your body processes the food. And in a minute, I'll kind of go basically from mouth kind of, you know, through the GI tract and break down each kind of part of your body that helps to break down the meat. But knowing that you're eating less fiber and you're creating more work for your kidneys and liver by having excessive animal consumption, animal product or protein consumption, 
um, you're not doing your body a lot of favors in the essence of asking your body to constantly work, constantly break down, have that catabolism, uh, you know, aspect of what you're consuming. But once the protein is actually broken down, the kidneys ultimately excrete the protein as urea. And that's kind of what we look at when we do like renal panels or looking at your kidney function. We look at your creatinine. We look at your BUN. Um, that is urea, the, the you know way the kidney is trying to excrete basically this breakdown of protein. And if you think about it, this can be bad news for people who are already kind of in a diabetic state. Um, you know, diabetes has been known to be injurious or detrimental to kidney function. So if you have somebody who could be a diabetic, already have some strain on the kidneys itself, and then you add excessive meat consumption on top of that, you are asking a lot out of an organ that has already taken a hit from you know, other factors, being a diabetic and, and having, um, you know, damage to that organ. So something to just really kind of marinate and sit in if you are truly, you know, a diabetic and treating your diabetes or your sugars are not well controlled, um, that consumption of the meat product is, is actually going to make your kidneys work even harder. You're asking more of them. Interestingly enough, one study from the New England, New England Journal of Medicine and the Journal of Clinical Nutrition saw that people who actually ate meat three times per week gained more weight than people who avoided meat and consumed more vegetables. Again, these are like legit journals, right? I'm not just blowing smoke and grabbing things out of, you know, Google and asking Siri, you know, wild questions. Basically, these are researched, you know, evidence-based solid journals. And again, I feel like I'm not saying something that we already don't know. If you're consuming more meat than vegetables, eh, your body's going to not like that, right? It, it's just not rocket science, I guess, in my mind. But had to get it out there, had to just, you know, plant-based that, haha, <laughs> plant-based, get it? See what I did there? <laughs> just talk about basically what the journals are saying as well and reverberating kind of the message that I'm trying to get across. Now, when you talk about the breakdown of the protein itself, starts in the mouth, right? Your mouth, you chew it, you have hydrochloric acid um, that eventually, you know, once the meat hits the stomach, and then pepsin starts to dismantle the proteins um, in the body. Now, obviously, this takes longer to break down meat than it may take longer, you know, less longer, less time to break down carbs, fats. And that's probably why you have that full sensation after eating a high meat meal. Um, so, you know, if you are eating a huge steak, a huge, you know, T-bone or something, and on top of that, you added corn and potatoes and some fibrous beans, which are, you know, kind of common sides when you're going to a nice steakhouse or something, the meat itself will <laughs> take exponentially longer than, say, the other products or the other food that you consumed, but the digestion is just slow. And again, people walk out of there going, oh, I've got to unbutton my pants. I feel so bloated. I feel so full. That is why, right? The meat is just going to take longer to process. Once the meat product hits the small intestines, a majority of the digestion, this is where the majority of it occurs. Uh, more enzymes begin to release the breakdown of uh, the, the protein into amino acids. And by the end of the small intestines, these amino acids are then transported from the inside of the intestines into the bloodstream. This requires ATP or energy to actually do this. So you're asking your body 
to produce some energy basically to make this um, transition. Once the amino acids are in the blood, uh, these go to the liver. And this, this is kind of a checkpoint really for the amino acid distribution. Your liver kind of says, okay, where do you need this amino acid? Where do you need this protein basically to go? And just a side note, you know, we need to remember that amino acids contain nitrogen. So further catabolism or breakdown of amino acids release nitrogen containing ammonia. Because ammonia is toxic, the liver transforms it into urea, which is then transported to the kidneys and excreted in the urine, i.e. what we had just talked about, how the protein is ultimately transcribed into urea and you pee it out. This is where that all kind of stems from, right? The breakdown of the amino acids, that contain that breakdown goes into ammonia, that's toxic to the liver, so the liver punts it to the kidneys and the kidneys, kidneys try and excrete it. Interestingly enough, very little protein actually makes it to the large intestine if you're not eating excessive amounts, okay? That's kind of the point to be had here. If you are eating excessive amounts of protein, animal protein, I should say, you might have smelly farts. Truly, this actually may be a sign you're eating too much protein because the excess is actually making it to your colon where your gut microbes are digesting it and producing smelly gas. How wild is that, right? We all have that, you know, person or crazy uncle or husband or whoever who's just constantly for lack of a better word, just ripping farts, right? And the reality is, as ridiculous as it sounds, the protein that they're consuming has made it to the large, you know, intestines or the colon kind of area. And that excess gas is, these bacteria basically eat up the fermented meat that's been basically fermenting in your body for some hours and produce stinky farts. So just something to kind of be aware that if your body is telling you something, this is maybe something that's going on. So the other discussion is really what is in the meat, okay? We just talked about amino acids, right? Amino acids are just the building building blocks of protein muscle. And, you know, that is supposed to be in the meat. That is what meat is, amino acids, these tiny little molecules that kind of build on top of each other to make meet what it is. But some other things that we don't want in the meat are the antibiotics, right? Most factory farm animals, and let's be honest, they live in their own poo, pee, vomit, they get sores, they get, you know, skin breakdown, etc. Those antibiotics are given to these animals to prevent them basically from dying from any infectious process, okay? It's not for any other reason besides keeping the animals alive and preventing profound illness or, uh, you know, pathogenic disease basically to spread from cow to cow, chicken to chicken, you know, what have you, turkey to turkey, what have you. You know, it makes sense, right? No cow, no money. No turkey, no money. No chicken, no money. So, these antibiotics are given to them to prevent that. Now, interestingly enough, half of the antibiotics made in the U.S. are actually for farm animals. I paused because that's wild. Not humans, animals. That just goes to show you how much we have um, integrated making sure that these animals receive these antibiotics 
because of the money involved in losing livestock and losing these animals to an infectious process. What's not great is, you know, the meat consumption, you're eating those antibiotics, right? Whatever was ingested in that animal and then whatever was sustained in the product itself, self, whether it be the milk, um, the cheese that came from that milk or, you know, what have you or how to make that or the meat itself, we consume those antibiotics as well. And ultimately, I can't help but think that, you know, there's that resistance there that does really exist, that antibiotic resistance. So you consume the meat, which has the antibiotic in it. You get sick, and at some point in time, the body has said, nope, I've already seen that antibiotic, and this bug got smarter than the antibiotic. And the antibiotic we would have put you on, thinking that you didn't have a resistance aspect to it, may not actually be effective because you've already seen that antibiotic and the bug outsmarted that antibiotic. So, I mean, is it a stretch? Maybe? No? I don't know. Um... I just think it's something that, you know, we've talked about for a long time between antibiotics and growth hormones, all these things, which we'll talk about growth hormones here in a minute. But um, I know for sure if I get sick and I need an antibiotic, I hope to God I don't have a resistance, um, you know, to that antibiotic because the reality is at some point you keep, you know, we keep giving these heavy hitter antibiotics, heavy hitter antibiotics. We keep going up the chain of a stronger antibiotic at some point we won't have a stronger antibiotic. And that is the reality of it. So, um, you know, I know just eating meat is, is, may not be a big deal to some individuals. And don't get me wrong, I remember the taste of a good hot dog. I remember the taste of a great filet. Don't get me wrong, it, it, it tastes good. But at what cost to your health, at what cost to, you know, the animal and at what cost to the environment itself? That's kind of how I look at it. But some other things that are in the meat, um, you know, it's not to go without saying the chemicals itself, um, you know, that somehow end up in the meat in the product itself. Uh, BHC, benzene, hexachloride, DDT, dioxin, HCB. Um, I literally Googled like all of these crazy chemical names and it just sounds awful, like thinking about it. Um, (laughs) How these chemicals get into the animal is, um, you know, still kind of up for debate. Is it in the food? Is it, you know, are we spraying pesticides and organicides or organochlorine, um, you know, on the food or around the animal? Is it in the grass they're eating as well? If they are grass fed, you know, cows or chickens or, you know, whatever. Um, It's hard to say, but basically these chemicals are in the meat and, you know, it kills the pests. But it also can cause very profound nerve system dysfunction in humans. Um, Some of these chemicals, the organochlorine and insecticides, we actually use these, um, interestingly enough, to kill licensed scabies. It's it's in the treatment. Um, So I don't know many people that would be like, yeah, just put a little bit of lice treatment on on my meats. Sounds good. (laughs) Again, I'm being facetious, but um, just something to think about. And truly... You know, coming from a reputable reputable source, the FDA actually did do their own study, um, which ultimately showed that bacon had about 14 
48 different pesticides in it. Lunch meat was about 102 pesticides. A fast food hamburger was about 113. And hot dogs topped the list at about 123 different pesticides um, within the meat itself. So um, interestingly, and, and I do get this argument a lot, our produce also has these pesticides and insecticides and organochlorine you know, type products on them. Um, but the evidence also does show that the meat products do can contain about five times greater pesticides than plant products, um, you know, depending on where you're getting the plants and things of that nature. Again, it's all, um, it's all dependent on, you know, where you're getting it. Are these organic produce, you know, products now? And, and yes, there's an argument for everything. I guess my point is that knowing what you're putting in the body from the meat consumption standpoint and and what is in the meat again you just need to think long and hard what you're actually putting in your body what you're putting in um, our children's body is you know a big factor of it as well you know these little bodies we're asking to process all of these chemicals can they (laughs) is their body equipped to do that is their nerve system equipped to do that their brain their little livers their kidneys Um, that's kind of what runs through my mind a lot of times when I'm looking at information that comes to me, like in, you know, from this context. So, and then obviously steroids and growth hormones. Um, we've known this for a long time too. Again, I'm not telling you guys anything that hasn't been put out in the media, you know, um, for decades now, but it makes sense, right? The bigger the animal, so the steroids and the growth hormones, the bigger the animal, the more money for meat. You know, um, the FDA itself states that they've approved hormones such as um, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. These are actually considered natural hormones per them. Um, But these are more hormones that are not naturally in, they're naturally in the cow or chicken or, you know, whatever. They are supplementing and giving more of these hormones to these animals. And that wherein lies the problem, right? If it was baseline estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, then okay, the consumption is a baseline, but adding more to create a bigger animal is really the concept. Um, And then synthetic versions of natural hormones such as um, tremboline, acetate, and xeranol. Um, Again, these are all kind of very unfamiliar terms to me, but looking at you know, the information. And again, this is coming from the FDA. Again, not a, hey, I just Googleized it. Um, You know, the side effects that can come from some of these synthetic and natural hormones, you're looking at increased body hair, acne, voice changes, scalp hair loss, um, suppression of your natural testosterone, um, ultimately suppression of good cholesterol, we can, you know, consuming this can increase prostaglandins, which are like, you know, inflammatory and, and vasoconstrictive properties um, in your body. It, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense why we would choose to put these things in our body. Again, I know the taste is good, <laughs> but you're looking at all of these, you know, just problems that could come down the pipeline and their sacrifice just for, um, you know, a, a edible taste basically is, is kind of my point. And what I found interesting was the way they inject these animals, you know, the cows actually get injected in the ear, 
Then they slaughter the cow. And I mean, they get rid of the ear, right? Unless like, you know, you eat pig ears. I, I don't know. Seems weird. I'm sure somebody does it. Who knows? <laughs> but it, just because that was kind of um, the research that was showing saying, hey, we're injecting, you know, not in the muscle, in the butt, in a, in a place where you would eat, I guess, where the injection site was. But the reality is it's all systemic. So it is in the meat. Even though they're injecting in an ear that may not be edibly consumed, um, it's already swimming, right? It's already in the system. And with consumption of it, it's already there. So I felt like that was kind of a mute point when um, they were trying to, they meaning, you know, the resources and and when the FDA was saying this is how we do it and kind of all of that, um, I just thought it was interesting that that's, they, they made it sound like, okay, well, it's injected in the ear, so you're not consuming the ear, so it's all good. But, yeah, is it? <laughs> I don't know. I just, I have to question it. So, and the other thing, and this this other people don't get on board with, and that's okay too, um, to each his own. But I think about how the animals were actually treated in those conditions. I would like to think nine out of, you know, 10 people, if you literally saw the pig, saw the cow, saw the chicken, and they were covered in pee, poo, vomit, flies, like you actually went to these slaughterhouses and you were like, yep, that, that cow, that cow, it's got some sores on it. Its udders are blistering and bleeding, and it's covered in crap. I want that one. I can can we? I want to slaughter that one. Like, if given the opportunity, would you be able to do that? For me, it would be no. And I know there's a lot of people out there, um, you know, the farmers in particular, people who are raising these animals and working in slaughterhouses. I know for you guys, it may not be a big deal to kill an animal or, you know, slaughter this animal in in whatever shape or form. For me, I personally couldn't do it. And I feel like if a lot of people were put in the same position, they wouldn't be able to either in regards to saying, yep, that's the one I want and I'm going to take it home and just slaughter it right now, especially in front of me. I, I just feel like a lot of people would have a hard time doing that. And for me, if I'm not willing to um, you know, see that and go through that and consciously know what that animal went through, I'm not going to consume the product itself. That's you know, that's me. Um, but um, again, to each his own. So the other question is, what about chicken and fish? Right? Okay, I'll eat more chicken. I'll eat more fish. Ah, pump the brakes. According to the American Journal of Epidemiology. Eating chicken and fish is actually still linked to colon cancer. You know, there was always a big um, connection or fluff between eating red meat and colon cancer and kind of all of these other health problems. So people are like, oh, I eat white meat. I eat, you know, more chicken and and this and that. Um, Interestingly enough, the National Cancer Institute found that grilled chicken had really the highest carcinogens when the animal protein was heated, more so than red meat. So again, something to kind of put in the memory bank, right? Where you're like, oh, I'm choosing the healthier choice of chicken. It's maybe not (laughs) in regards to um, carcinogen properties. And, you know, kind of going back to the American Journal of Epidemiology, now they actually followed people for six years And these people avoided red meat. Now, what that means, eh, kind of ambiguous, right? Um, You know, these studies are always really challenging because it's in regards to, 
consistency and having that, um, you know, baseline of did did people actually really follow the rules? Did they say they only ate, you know, uh, vegetables that day when they may have snuck in, you know, a little drumstick, little chicken drumstick? It's hard to say, right? But they followed people for six years. And in the research, they said they avoided red meat, but they ate white meat once a week. Their colon risk, colon cancer risk, was actually 55% higher than those that avoided any meat. So it goes to show you even the white meat once a week, you know, you're still at risk for colon cancer. And that was kind of what came about from that entire kind of research, you know, um, article. Now fish, fish we've always known, um, I shouldn't say always, but again in the past, you know, handful of, of decades here, a couple decades, high levels of mercury, PCB, previous pesticides that were mentioned, you know, these are farm-raised fish that we're talking about here. Um, not good. When we ingested these chemicals, our body was really unable to release cholinesterase, which is a natural chemical used for neurological processes. And you can kind of see where I'm going here, but this is why we tell pregnant women to limit or avoid fish product altogether, you know, ultimately causing fetal brain damage, infertility, things of that nature. So these farm-raised farm fish are not something you need to be consuming at all, in my mind. You need to be finding the wild-caught fish, um, you know, and if any type of meat consumption um, needs to be in excess, um, I would truly opt for having you know, fish, fish product, um, wild caught, uh, you know, good quality fish product, you know, over time, how our body adapted basically to changes in food product. One of the books was called eat right for your blood type. And it was, it, it hit home pretty much for me because it really touched base on like the ancestral aspect of the connection between your blood type and what foods you may or may not benefit from, um, from kind of almost a genetic standpoint, right? Um, you know, blood type itself is a genetic fingerprint that identifies your DNA. And this book really went through every single blood type in, in specifics and, you know, type O being the oldest, type A really evolved from a society that began to cultivate land, Type B emerged when humans migrated really to colder, harsher territories. And then type AB blood type was actually from like a modern adaption, um, which again was really cool just to kind of think about, again, the ancestral like lineage of, lineage of how blood types kind of um, morphed and adapted. But I found it interesting to know that type O blood types really, they thrive on intense physical exercise and animal protein. And evolutionary type O actually did better um, while in like a state of ketosis, so high protein, high fat, low carb. And it was kind of found genetically that dairy products and grain really weren't type O's friend. And they burned meat as fuel a lot better than any other blood type. They actually had high stomach acid and they were able to utilize this meat as fuel better than any other blood type. So looking more at the other blood types, type A, which actually that is what I am, incidentally, um, they flourish better on vegetarian diets in their natural state. Uh, biologically, 
type A's are predispositioned to heart disease, cancer, and diabetes, and can store meat um, really as fat. We have low stomach acid, and dairy is also poorly digested. And when I was kind of reading some of this, it was like hitting home where I was like, oh my God, yeah, that, oh yeah, that food's no good. Okay, it makes sense. Like I was really kind of getting into it. And then I sat back, I'm like, okay, Danielle, are you doing this because you know you're a type A and you knew you were already a vegetarian and you kind of knew all these things about you and you're like indirectly linking it, like subconsciously, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that is me. That's right. Um, Or, you know, is there really some clout behind this? I don't know, 100%, um, you know, but the book itself was just very interesting. And um, for me, at least personally, it was kind of hitting spot on in regards to just what my body would do with certain foods and and maybe ancestrally what I needed from a genetic standpoint as far as no meat consumption, um, less dairy, those types of things. So, and just to kind of keep moving, type B basically was a combination of type A and type O, um, really just a balancing between the two. And then type AB blood really didn't fit in any of the categories, but are mixed between a type A and a type B. So genetically, they're programmed to consume meat, but really lack the stomach acid to metabolize them effectively. Um, But if you're ever interested, you know your blood type and you're ever interested, um, that book like I said, E-Ray for your blood type, it was it was just a pretty cool concept um, just to read and go through and kind of see that connection maybe a little bit. So now what does the evidence really show? Again, what I'm kind of going to discuss here are just bullet points. It's This is not a full, um, you know, compilation of research and things of that nature, just really bullet points of, of meat and, you know, good and bad really on meat consumption. So meat in the diet provides an important source of protein and micronutrients. Iron, zinc, vitamin B, this is known, right? Um, There are benefits of meat consumption. It's not all bad. We do get good, again, protein content. We do get good, uh, you know, minerals and things of that nature and vitamins. However, energy-dense diets, i.e. diets high in meat, fats, and sugars, and Basically, you compound this with a sedentary lifestyle, a couch potato lifestyle. This has been implicated in the growing epidemics of obesity and diet-related chronic diseases. So I always say it, right? You put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. And if you don't move and groove and do anything, I mean, you're just teeing yourself up for obesity and chronic disease. It's just that simple. It's not... It doesn't have to be researched and studied. You know, if you're just going to sit and eat garbage, you're going to eventually, you know, feel like garbage, look like garbage, <laughs> and, it, you know, nothing beneficial will come from it. Now, evidence also suggests that vegetarians actually may have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and some cancers. But Incidentally, low-fat, high-carb diets have not been wholly positive or successful in reducing burden of chronic disease within the general population. And I, I have to be honest with you, I kind of fall into that, right? I don't eat meat, so I kind of supplement with high-carbohydrate meals. And in reality, I may not be doing myself much favors in regards to my carb consumption. So again, something to really let marinate sink in personally for me, um, you know, and, and someone who's maybe considering going vegetarian or, or vegan, 
Um, it's not difficult to fall into another wheelhouse. You know, you can be a really unhealthy vegetarian. There's no doubt about it. Um, but really understanding, you know, how much consumption of these, you know, non-meat products that maybe aren't the best for you in excessive consumption um, needs to be understood and realized as well. Meat cooking. This is something um, that... I feel like we have talked about in the past, it has been on the news, but cooking meat at high temperatures or even charring meat, processing techniques such as smoking, curing, salting, or the addition of any chemical preservatives, this actually leads to the formation of carcinogenic compounds. Um, I'm talking nitrates, nitrites, um, you know, other chemical compounds with long chemical names. Um, But the reality is, you know, you you put it on the grill and it tastes great absolutely but you put it on the grill and it's somewhat charred or you know you're cooking at high temperatures this is something that truly is creating carcinogens within the meat itself and ingestion of that then tells your body let's produce you know or let's try and break down and and filter and remove all these carcinogens Um, ultimately leading to increase of cancer, i.e. colorectal cancer really is is the big caveat here. Inflammation and oxidative stress have also been linked to the intake of meat and disease risk. Red meat, um, really due possibly to its fat and iron content, may increase inflammation and oxidative stress, but you know, there hasn't been much much research regarding lean and white meats, uh, mainly just red meats in regards to, you know, the inflammatory processes and oxidative stresses that can happen. Uh, But also, you know, something to consider um, with meat consumption. And again, uh, you know, I just kind of touched based on it, based on it, but the most robust human evidence for red and processed meat intake is the, the connection with colorectal cancer. So I told you I'd touch base just briefly about it, but what does mass production of meat actually do to the environment? Meat produces more emissions per unit of energy compared to that of any plant-based food because of the energy that's actually lost at each trophic level. So what does that mean? That means that meat production is the single most important source of methane, which has a relatively high warming potential, but a low half-life in the environment compared to that of carbon dioxide. So again, I hate to be like this hippity-dippity huggy tree type person, but for someone who is consuming the meat product, you are buying into, you know, these big brand meat farming companies and industry, you know, and industries. And by saying you need more and by buying it, they create more. They create more cows, they create more chickens, they create more product. And more, 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 more means we're taking away more, 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 more from our planet and not giving back anything in the essence of just, you know, methane and increased, um, you know, emission. And, And when I say energy is lost at each trophic level, I mean, the juice isn't worth the squeeze basically is what I get out of that, right? to grow the animal, um, to, to feed it antibiotics, hormones, to keep it in these, you know, mass slaughterhouses, and then to process the meat, to transport the meat, to get it in that grocery store for you to cook it, consume it. 
it you're losing you know not only monetary value but just environmental energy at each level it just doesn't seem worth it in my mind um, but again i know other people that's not a thought process that's not something that is a concern to them and again to each his own but if you start truly thinking about the breakdown at each point and the effect that this is actually having on the environment um, I don't know about you guys, but I want my kids, 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 kids to enjoy this planet just like I did back in the 80s, riding my bike, you know, down, down the street, street lights came on, get your butt home like that. <laughs> to me, that's something that I would want for the future is to experience a planet like we have had in the essence of a beautiful planet, right? Um, when you're looking at freshwater, agriculture actually uses more freshwater than any other human activity, with nearly a third required for livestock. Water is going to be one hot commodity here soon. Uh, me being from Michigan, the Great Lakes state, it's one of those where, you know, as a Michigander, we know the importance of water. We know, you know, I, I have a whole other, um, you know, podcast at some point, but I have a whole video and PowerPoint on water itself. And, um, you know, being in Michigan, we've seen issues with water, with the, you know, Flint River water crisis. And I come from a hometown where PFAS in the water is um, a huge problem. And we've seen bad effects from it. And the reality is, you know, if we're just consuming, consuming, consuming all of this water at some point, we won't have the water. Um, I That's just, you know, kind of the downstream thing I think about. And then the effects of biodiversity, you know, in particular through land conservation to pasture feed crops, we cut down all these forests, right, to create these pastures, really to meet the demand for animal feed. Um, is it necessary? Like, how do we, again, we just keep take, take, taking and never giving back. At some point, the planet itself will say, I'm not giving anything back. And if anything, you're getting garbage back. <laughs> um, so just another way, I guess, of thinking about how meat consumption is linked to a bigger picture than just yourself. So I kind of did this little wild, um, you Googleized search and I, you Googleized, right? What if every American actually stopped eating meat for just one day, every week for one year? That's all I asked. One day, every week for one year. 3.5 animals per person could be spared, which I think is cool. Again, other people, eh, they could care less. But that's about 1.4 billion animals per year that didn't have to die, okay? Now, directly, this would actually show that we're lowering the emission of greenhouse gases, okay? So we would see a direct, basically, impression right away on greenhouse gases. If you continued, again, one day, every week for one year, you're saving about 100 billion gallons of water each year. Because remember, it takes about 1,700 gallons of water for one pound of beef. Only 39 gallons for one pound of vegetables. Seriously, dude. Like, that to me is just mind-blowing, right? There's no argument there. You can't say, oh, well, you're watering the vegetables and the crops and da-da-da. 1,700 gallons of water for just one little pound of beef, but only 39 gallons for one pound of vegetables. 
mind blown. Um, you're saving about $7 million, um, or I'm sorry, you're saving about 70 million gallons of gas, um, which if, you know, you're a gas person in the essence of that, um, that's pretty freaking important. And then when it ultimately comes down to a monetary aspect, you know, you're saving money at the checkout line. Okay, directly, yes, because if you, I tell people, like, I'm like, shop the outskirts, right, of the grocery store. Whatever the middle aisles are, don't look too hard. Just pick and choose kind of, you know, if you're a canned bean person, grab it. If you need some red sauce, grab it. But all the other package crap, like, no bueno, right? Outskirts. So you will save money ultimately and directly at the checkout line. But indirectly, you're looking at about $147 billion annually by reducing the incidence of stroke, heart attack, and diabetes in correlation with less meat consumption. To me, I, I just, I can't find any other reason why, you know, given all of these points, why me consuming meat would be anything beneficial to me personally, to the environment personally, or to my pocketbook personally. I, you know, to me, that's just kind of what I look at. So when I tell people who are, you know, pure carnivores, how do you approach this, right? Again, just starting out one day a week. I, I don't even care if it's one meal a week, just starting there. And ultimately, you have a whole day, one whole day out of the week, every single week where you just don't eat meat. You just find, again, they tried to do the meatless Monday thing where, you know, all day you just ate vegetarian and what have you. If you want to do it Monday, fine. Statistics and research show usually on Monday people are more apt to actually stick to something. It's the beginning of the week. You had a long weekend. I ate like garbage. Okay, new me, new Monday, da, da, da. But really starting there and then start stretching that out. After a couple weeks of doing that, add another day of no meat meals all day. And you finally get to the point where your meat meals are your treat, not the staple. Now you take it as far as you want to go, but the reality is at some point, that meat is not going to be as good as it once was in the reality of how good you will feel and the kind of, I don't want to say chronic conditions, but just the chronic like stuff that comes with you know, the chronic feelings of not feeling good, feeling constantly bloated, having poor, you know, poor digestion, constipation, or even diarrhea going the other way. Um, I promise you, things will start to change. Your health will start to change. I promise you. Like it's, it's not even a question. Your health will start to change. You will start to change as a person. So the take home. Meat is not all bad, okay? I said this from the clip. I said it from the beginning. This is not a meat bashing podcast. But processed factory farm meat is bad. Quit supporting these big companies. They don't care about your diabetes. They don't care about your kidney dysfunction. They don't care that you're morbidly obese. They want you to buy more. They want you to consume, consume, consume because it's more money in their pocket right? And again, I know the meat tastes good. They make it taste good. So you keep eating more. Um, It's not good for you. It's just not good for you. Find your local farmer. If not so local, buy, you know, farm raised, do your homework. Okay. Find where this meat is coming from 
and ask questions. What are they putting in the grain? What are you, are these free range grass fed cows and chickens? Do they get antibiotics or hormones? You need to ask these questions because you're the one consuming it. Okay. They may be too, because it's their product. Shoot, ask them. Maybe they don't even consume their own product because they know what goes in it. I don't know. But there's a way around it. And the way around it is finding your local farmer, farm raised, do not buy this factory farm crap meat. Same with fish, right? Don't buy that store-bought fish. You know, it's likely farm-raised fish. Local fish suppliers, saltwater catch, all of these things, again, it's for the better of your health. Does it cost more? Maybe. But what's your health cost, right? What's a night in my ICU, a day in my ICU cost? I can guarantee you going to the store and buying healthy, good product costs a heck of a lot cheaper than spending the night in one of my ICU beds. And you talk about money, you know, how can you afford this? Well, stop eating so much meat. Your meat meals, again, should be the treat for the week, not the staple for every single meal. Um, You know, when I first started, there were like literally no plant-based options. And now there's like hundreds of different plant-based meat options out there. You know, I, I was making weird, funky, vital wheat, gluten ribs, and now you can literally go to the store you know, buy some of these products. And I'm not going to lie, like, you know, my family, my husband's kind of gotten used to it now. My kid eats it. He loves um, the majority of all of it. Um, But even, you know, my family and close friends, I'm like, just try it, see. And the majority of them say, hmm, it's not so bad. So, you know, I urge you to do this for you. Do this for your health. Do this for loved ones, your kids. Um, Start really thinking about it. Think about that meat consumption. Think about what was in it. Where did it come from? What did it go through? What did we just waste so we could have a 15-minute meal that we woofed down, feel like garbage, and, uh, you know, all the byproduct of, of that itself. So, and if you actually go to um, my YouTube page or the website and click on the uh, link and watch me through the video with this web, uh, I'm sorry, through this um, topic, The very last page besides my resource page is all of my cookbooks to consider. Um, I just put tons of pictures of what cookbooks I started to use and truly the ones that I absolutely love where I can get pretty damn close to, you know, um, the best, you know, vegetarian lasagna you you can get and, you know, hamburgers and hot dogs and, uh, you know, cooking, vegan cooking for carnivores and all these things. Um, Truly look at just grabbing some books, Pinterest some crap, get it in your mind and start doing it because I promise you, you will feel like a whole new person. Um, Your health will change, your life will change and I urge you to kind of just do your own homework on it. So I hope this was helpful on giving you a little more information on how you can change what's going into your body and, um, you know, a little more education to make those good, healthy life choices. So I hope all are well and be well. Thanks, friends. Thanks for listening to another Pure Root Wellness Podcast. To learn more about ways to optimize your health using nutritional and supplemental support, visit my website at purerootwellness.net where you'll find more videos and links regarding holistic approaches to your nutrition, supplement knowledge, and health topics.